Well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made. It is only fitting that we rejoice and be glad. Aren't you glad to gather together and worship? Okay, all 10 amens on that one. Aren't you glad to be worshiping together? Amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. My name is uh, Brendan Loritz. I bring you greetings from Las Vegas, where I do not miss the weather right now. It was 105 five degrees when we had left, so praise the Lord. Um, it's good to be here with my beloved wife, uh, Lucretia. Uh, we just recently, a couple months ago, celebrated 17 years of marriage. Amen. 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 And our daughters, uh, Leilani, who will be 15 next, next Sunday, and then Brianna, who's uh, 12, and then Sanaya, who's 7. Yes, I'm a preacher's kid. I love busting them out because my dad busted me out, too. Uh, growing up, growing up. So what a joy it is. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I'm just excited. Uh, I just love uh, times like this because it's a great time to get away from the busyness of life and to lean in and to focus. And if you have a Bible or a digital device, meet me in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, a very familiar passage of scripture for many of us who you spent time reading God's word and the table of contents for this week, I don't have any series per se. I really just want to share with you what the Lord's been teaching me. And each day we're going to walk through a text verse by verse and just really see what the Lord will have for us. And today, this morning, I want to speak on the issue of worship. The issue of worship. Now, obviously, <laughs> it's an eternal thing, right? So these are, this is just a window, a glimpse into what we were born to do. So Isaiah chapter 6, I want to read to you the first uh, couple of verses, but we'll cover this, uh, the seven verses in our time together this, this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, if you have it, say amen. amen. If you don't, say hold up. All right, all right. I'm reading from the ESV. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe, get this, Filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Father, what a joy it is to know that I have nothing to say except for what you have said. We sit under the authority of your word, for your word changes lives, not the preacher. And Father, I don't know what the challenges my brothers and sisters have walked in here with this morning. I don't know what's awaiting them when they go back home. But Lord, I do pray in this holy moment in this holy oasis that you would arrest our hearts that you would captivate us that we will be challenged to look more like our savior jesus as we leave this place and so father we pray and as i pray many times i pray yet again that may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight O lord my strength and my redeemer in jesus name we pray and everybody said well i grew up in a christian home my father crawford loritz can loritz they they were notorious for signing us up for stuff. <laughs> My mother, she didn't do this, let's discuss what you would like to do type of ministry. It was, this is the Lord's will. You are going to this camp. 
You're not coming home after your college you know, year and doing nothing. You're doing some work for the Lord. And I used to hate that many times. I got to be honest, I used to hate it. But then as I went through it, went through the camp, went through the experience, I realized that Mama not only was right, but God met me. God met me. God wants to meet you today. God wants to meet you this week. God wants to imprint you, give you and I experiences, whether it's having fun, meeting new friends, or whether it's worshiping, singing some songs, or getting to the scriptures. God wants to imprint your life. So approach this as a time to really seek God. Why? Because God has something to say. And the vehicle for this is worship. Powerful, powerful scene as we come to Isaiah 6. And a key thought I want to lift up for your consideration this morning is this, that true worship is an ongoing, life-changing experience. True worship is an ongoing, life-changing experience. I like what Henry Blackaby says, that at the end of the day, worship is obedience. That as I walk with God, I'm, I'm worshiping him. As I obey God, I'm worshiping him. And so what we're going to see here as we peer into this beautiful scene is that true worship is an ongoing, life-changing experience. And God's going to give Isaiah an experience that's not only going to impact him in the moment, but for the rest of his ministry. You see, God impacts us so that we could change the world, so that we can magnify his name, so that we can live for him in this moment in history. So true worship is an ongoing, life-changing experience. That's the key, key idea. Let me give you three dominant things here. Number one, what do we learn of worship? Number one, worship is an upward look. Worship is vertical is what I'm saying. Ver worship is an upward look. The Bible says in the year, verse one, that King Uzziah died. And when you study the scripture, don't water ski through the text. Learn to sit in this verses. Learn to understand what's happening here. Second Chronicles 26 is a good historical background to this because God raised up a king, King Uzziah, who reigned for 52 years. God used this great king to bring peace and prosperity to the land. However, the brother thought he was too sexy for his shirt. <laughs> he was filled with pride. He, he had some arrogance in him and God had warned him he did not turn, he did not repent, he did not listen. So God said, okay, I don't share my glory with anybody. Give me back my breath. He died. Now feel the tension here. This great king that God used to bring peace and prosperity, this, this great leader that the people followed and, and leaned into, the one that the people looked up to, voted for, celebrated, is now dead. How do you think they felt? What kind of uncertainty crossed their mind? Ah, church. It's easy to forget about God when everything's going well. 
It's easy to put God on the back, on the back burner when, when you got everything that you, you're, you're achieving. It's, it's easy to forget about God when things are going well with your health and things are going well in the family and things are going well in your career. It's easy to forget about God. So what God does is that he loves to shake the foundations of our lives. He will allow metaphorical Uzziahs to die. Don't blame the devil. Don't give the devil too much press. God's like, no, 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 it's me that's shaking your world. Because I need you to understand Uzziah is not your God. I am your God. And you need to have a clear picture of a God who woke you up this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I love this, in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of an uncertain moment, I saw the Lord. Sit, sit, sit in that for a second. I saw the Lord. Now, let's get some clarity here. On the basis of Scripture, we know that Isaiah did not see God because the Bible says he dwells in unapproachable light. He sees the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Jesus would say in John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things, speaking of this particular verse, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, who alone has immortality, speaking of God, who dwells in unapproachable light, watch this, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He sees Jesus Christ, the Lord, on the throne. In the midst of a crisis, he sees God on the throne. Now, he, he, he's struck by a few things. No, notice, number one, he saw his majesty. I love this. The text says, sitting upon a throne. One version says, seated on a throne. I, lo I love this. This speaks of the sovereignty of God. One preacher would say that God reigns the universe with his feet up. While the world is panicking, while the world is running from to and fro, God is calm, cool, and collected. God is forever in the eye of the tiger zone. Hello, Rocky. God forever is calm, cool, and collected. His eyes are focused. He's sitting on the throne. Listen, God is not taking Maylocks over your problem. God is not looking at America and all its political issues and all its challenges and saying, how in the world am I going to fix this? He is on the throne. He is sovereign. He's not shaken. Nobody is no match for God. And God says, I need, I, need to, I need to take your eyes off of your problem and put your eyes on me. Now, if God is calm, cool, and collected, why are we stressing? He said in the midst of the crisis, he says, I saw his majesty. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. But not only did he see his majesty, he also saw his transcendence. You see the phrase, high and lifted up. Uh, the, the, the train of his robe, it filled the temple. Later in verse 4, it says that the house was filled with smoke. Theologians would call this transcendence. So one scholar defines transcendence. Listen to this, and may our heads explode together. 
God exists apart from the creation that he made and thus above space and time. God is not in any way dependent upon his creation. He is self-existing, that is, he draws his own existence only from himself. He is absolute. What I want you to see here is the authority of God is not equal to any authority in this land. God does not take sides. He takes over. He's in a high and lofty place. He's on the throne. He's transcendent. He stands for no one. He stands only for himself. And his authority is not equal to any authority in this land. And God help us if we think otherwise. He saw his majesty. He saw his transcendence. But notice, he saw his holiness. That's verses 2 to 4. We see these angels, the seraphim, in verse 2. Notice the descriptions descriptions here. They they are known in Hebrew as the the burning ones. These are angels who attend to the Lord. Notice these these six wings are intentional. Nothing of God is random, by the way. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Nothing is random. Nothing is random. God's not saying, oops, I didn't mean to do that. So when he created these angels... Each set of wings had a purpose. Now, I want you to, I want you to see this. Uh, set of wings, number one, it says, two, he covered his face. Now, hear this. These eternal angelic beings, hear me, cannot look at him and live. These sinless, perfect angelic beings have a set of wings that covers their face, which indicates humility that I can't even look at him and live. Not a set of wings. Two, he covered his feet. It denotes service to God. Now, now we, we don't approach him any old kind of way. We don't walk up, up in his presence any old kind of way. No, there needs to be some reverence up in here, up in here. So even the angels, they're watching how they are approaching him. So they got two wings to cover his face. That's humility. Two wings to cover his feet. That's the idea of service with a holy approach. But then also two wings that they flew. In other words, it's proclaiming God's ongoing holiness and glory nonstop. And guess what? Even right now, they're saying the same chorus over and over and over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Did you know that the word holy is used more than 800 times in the Bible? It speaks of God's absolute moral purity. And honestly, the human finite mind cannot fully comprehend the proactive holiness and purity of God. God is totally otherly than. He's set apart. He is, he is distinct. He is holy. So much so that the Hebrew writers had to emphasize it three times. Holy, 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 which is a point of emphasis. Numbers 14, 21 says, but truly as I live... And as all the earth shall be filled 
with the glory of the Lord. Notice the outcome in verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. It's a profound picture of the presence and power of God. Actually, it's analogous to uh, Exodus 19, verse 18, which says this about Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Eugene Peterson says this about worship. He says that worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. It whets our appetite. Daniel Booman also says, worship is a stairway on which there is movement in two directions. God comes to man, and man goes to God. And I want to encourage us this morning. I don't know what's on your heart. I don't know what's waiting for you when you get home. May I encourage you on the basis of Scripture, let us all fight to take our eyes off of our circumstance and look to the God of our circumstance. I once heard a preacher say that when we magnify our problems, our God becomes small. But when we magnify our God, our problems become small. Worship inevitably says that, God, I want to live in a conscious state of drawing my eyes and my faith and my heart and my soul towards you, not just on Sunday morning, but Sunday afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Every tense I get, I'm seeking his face. Worship is an upward look, but it also is, as we see this in the text, It's also an inward look. Where did I get this from? Look at verse (laughs) 5. Isaiah says, And I said, Woe is me. Why? For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. He throws everybody else under the bus too. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, whoa, it's a statement of grief. It's a statement of desperation. It's a statement of despair. Did did you know, did you know a pattern in Scripture that whenever whenever a person encountered God in Scripture, one of the the fascinating, fascinating patterns you'll see is that they are immediately gripped by their own sin. Where do you get that from? Let me give you a few references. Job 42, verse 6 when Job saw the Lord, he repented. It says in Job 42, verse 6, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Peter, after seeing Jesus do a miracle in Luke 5, verse 8, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Even the apostle John in Revelation 1, verse 17, 8, I love this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. (laughs) He's holy, I'm guilty. He's holy, I'm filthy. Thus, that's why Isaiah says, number one, I'm lost. You know what it means to be lost? (laughs) It means to be cut off. 
that apart from the intervention of God, we are lost in our sin. We're lost. Good works can't get me to heaven. There's no such thing as a good person. Only God is good. Paul would say there's not one righteous. No, not one. So nobody in here is good. But oh, the king of glory, he's good. And when I see his holiness, I see my sinfulness, and I see how lost that I am. He says, I'm lost. But he also says, I'm filthy. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah 17, 9 lets us know that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We are some wicked folk. We are wicked. We are filthy. Sin permeates my attitude. It permeates my, my actions. It's ingrained in my DNA. He says, I'm lost. I am filthy. And then he says, everyone is lost and filthy. You see, fundamentally, when we look at the problems in our culture and in our world, the root of it is we have a sin problem. Laws can't change hearts. You hear what I said? Laws cannot change a person's heart. Jesus changes hearts. The gospel changes hearts. The Holy Spirit, when he works in your soul, he changes hearts. And so when we look at the landscape of our society, it says that we all are lost and filthy. Now, now why in the world would Isaiah say this? Because he saw the holiness of God. You see, it's easy. We all can make ourselves look good when we compare ourselves to somebody horizontally. But when we compare ourselves to him, nobody can stand. You know, I grew up, and many of us grew up in homes where you had to do the chore ministry. Hello, somebody. And washing dishes. And I grew up in the south. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. And, you know, summertime, it was brutal because me and my brother's assignment was to cut the, cut the grass in the front side, trim the, all, all that stuff. And, you know, 90 degrees, 95% humidity, not a cloud in the sky. It felt like 200 degrees outside. And it was, just, it was just crazy. And my dad would just have us working, working, and working, and working. But another chore that we had was washing dishes. Now, our, our dishwasher, you know, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But my mama, you know, she, she was old school. So we was her dishwashers. And I remember, I'm a little kid, learn, learn how to wash dishes. And so here I am and washing dishes, and I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm on a roll. I'm, I'm being a successful dishwasher. But all of a sudden, I had my first adversity with washing dishes. Came across this pan, and this pan was caked up with stuff. And no matter how much I tried to wash, uh, it wouldn't come off. And I'm, I'm trying to, 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 to wheel it to come off. It wouldn't come off. It wouldn't come off. I'm frustrated. I says, Ma, I can't get this off. She was like, boy, let me show you something, baby. She runs a little hot water, and she, she puts a little bit of dish detergent in, into, into the pan, and she mixes the hot water with the pan. And, and I said, is it done? She says, no. When you come across something that's caked up like this, you have to let it sit. You have to introduce it to something that is stronger than itself. You have to let it abide and sit. And as it sits in the detergent intertwines with the filth, the filth becomes loosened, not by your ability, but by something that was created to loosen up the stuff that caked up the pan. So after 20 minutes of that sermon from my mama, (laughs) 
she grabs a pan and she pours it out and she just takes a cloth and it comes off quickly. You know, and I thought about that. You know, it, you know it's easy for stuff to get caked up in our hearts. It's easy to try to manage our sin instead of deal with our sin. It, it, it's easy. Oh, but when we live in a conscious state of worship, God has a way of breaking strongholds. God has a way of, 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 of loosening up the chains that, that so easily pulls us back. He has a way of reconciling a broken marriage. He has a way of, of, of mending the broken heart. He has a way of giving us hope. But the key is I have to sit. I have to marinate. I have to abide. Because didn't Jesus tell us that in John 15? If you abide in me and I in you, you will experience much fruit. But if you do not, you, cannot, you, can't, you can't bear, you can't bear, you can't, you can't accomplish anything of eternal value when you don't abide in me. So worship, yes, it's vertical, but it's also an inward reality. And I have to go to him for him to loosen up the crud in my heart. Can I ask you a few questions this morning? How are we doing with examining our own hearts? David would say, oh, Lord, search me. Oh, Lord, show me stuff I don't even know about myself. Lord, show me areas I need to grow in. By the way, that's a dangerous prayer, but it's a blessful prayer at the same time. Is my response to the Lord casual or with reverence? Does my sin grieve me? Or have I become calloused? Worship is vertical. Worship is inward. But number three, I've already tipped my hand to this one. Thirdly and finally, worship experiences God's grace. Worship experiences God's grace. This is a powerful moving scene here because if you look at verse six, in context, again, Isaiah is like, oh, man, I see the Lord. Okay, cool. I see myself. I'm a, I'm a mess. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a hot mess. Everybody else around me is. But then notice verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Whoa, 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 whoa. This, this, this is a beautiful picture of purification. Do you, you see what's happening here? God initiates the process of cleansing. Isaiah didn't initiate that. God initiates the process. Oh, what a beautiful picture of the cross. That Jesus Christ initiated a process. Even that while yet in my sin, he died for me. When he was taking those lashes, 39 lashes on his back, being flogged, he was thinking about you. When he went up Galgotha's hill, when he laid down and took rivets in his hands, in his feet, he was thinking about you. He would not come off the cross because he was focused on making a payment for your, you and I's salvation. God initiated the process. And that's what he's doing here. Isaiah, you're, you're a jacked up mess, but that's okay. My grace is going to come after you. And I'm going to use one of my angels to purify you. Thus, verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, 
Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I love this. Notice, notice, notice. God doesn't just cleanse us to make us right with him. He cleanses us also to use your life. Let me say that again. God not only cleanses us to make us right with him, he cleanses us because he wants to use your life. You're not a failure. You're not an accident. You're breathing right now which says, I want to use your life. I want to use you. I want to touch you. I want you to serve my purposes in your moment in history. You see, the great hound of heaven is the one that comes after us. I don't know about you, but we've all have heard that phrase, God is a God of a second chance. Show of hands, how many of us blew, up, blew our second chance up a long time ago? <laughs> God is not only a God of a second chance, he's a God of another chance. Worship experiences God's grace. And as we worship him in spirit and in truth, as we lean in and focus our attention upon him, simultaneously the Holy Spirit's at work in our hearts. He convicts us. He challenges us. Even now, he's calling things to mind. Even now, he's strengthening the heart. Even now, he's, he's strengthening our resolve. He's strengthening our faith. You see, that's act of grace. We don't deserve it, but he's doing it anyway because he loves us. Worship experiences God's grace. So, if our worship is going to be sincere, if our worship is going to be authentic, where, where do we go from here? As we go about our day today, as we go about our week and what God has for us this week, where do we go from here? Let me, let me give you three challenges here, and then I'll take my seat. Number one, we need to identify what has gotten in the way of our relationship with the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit apply it. It could be legitimate things that have become ultimate things. We would call that an idol, right? It could be, it could be you know, um, helicopter parenting, putting our kids in a place of God. Hello, Abraham. When we put our kids in a place of God, we put them at risk. It could be our careers. It could be our hobbies. Let the Holy Spirit apply what has gotten in the way of our relationship with God. We need to identify that. The second challenge I would say is this. We need to make worship not a priority. It needs to be the central priority of our lives. Everything for the follower of Jesus Christ, everything must flow out of our walk with God. David would say that my cup runneth over, which means that, you know, in the Jewish context, whenever, whenever the owner of the house was enjoying the fellowship, he would come and fill your cup. But if he was ready for you to leave, he ain't filling your cup. <laughs> David says the intimacy with God is so great that God himself keeps filling the cup as if to say, I don't ever want you to leave my presence. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there's pleasure forevermore. Worship must be the central. We were created to worship. There's not one person on this planet that does not worship. You're not going to find it. The question is, who do you worship? Who do you worship? Because every last one of us worships. 
But there's only one that satisfies, and that's the Lord. And so we need to make worship the central priority. The third challenge I would say to us is this. We need to be missional. Actually, this could have been a fourth major point because, I mean, it's right here. We need to be missional because notice actually in verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Some scholars think that this is reference to the Trinity. Then Isaiah said, here I am, send me. So worship is upward, inward. It experiences God's grace, but it also is outward. It's missional. That God doesn't just give you and I these experiences so that we can hoard it in our hearts. No, he gives us these experiences so that we can give it away. So that we can tell others about the goodness, goodness of God. So that we can tell others about where to find hope and healing. Worship is an outward reality. So do something about what God has done. The old song, go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills. And everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain. Do something about what God has done. True worship, again, is an ongoing, life-changing experience. Here's the question. Are we ready for that experience? God can do more in our lives in a flash than we can do for ourselves in a lifetime. But the vehicle is worship. The vehicle is worship. Holy Father, we, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it changes lives. We ask you right now, Lord, right now, to quiet our anxious heart. To direct our eyes on you. Yes, there's real challenges. Yes, there's real issues. And you are well acquainted with every human heart here. Lord, I pray that you would take us to a deeper place this week. I pray that you would take us to a deeper place starting even today. Remind us that you are on your throne, that you're not pacing heaven, wondering how you're going to fix the world's problems. Remind us that you are transcendent, that you, your, your authority is not equal to any authorities on this earth. That your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that the Holy Spirit is working even now, changing lives, directing our gaze to heaven. So Lord, remind us of these, of these things. That even though we live in a real fallen world, that we should never operate by sight, but we need to operate by faith. Knowing that your presence is among us and that you are with us and that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Help us to deal with our sin. Help us to come before you and confess, and, and not just confess, but to turn from our sin, to repent and to grow and to abide in you. Help us to experience your grace, even now as you're washing and you're cleansing our own hearts. Yes, to make us right with you, but to use our lives. Oh, help us, Lord. Lord, we honor you. We thank you. We bless you. 
Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.